other gods before me. On approach, part two. Let's pray. Lord God, as we approach this text today, we pray that you would speak afresh to us. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need you to pierce through our minds, to renew our minds, to quicken our hearts and wills so that we can seek after you. Do that mighty work through your spirit, working through this word preached today. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Having addressed then how to prepare the people for this meeting with God, it is now appropriate from the text that we have before us today to ask the question, well, what is this God like? How do I prepare, and what now is he all about? For as much as Sinai and this episode at Sinai is anything else, it is clearly a self-revelation from God. It is a time in Scripture, one of the clearest times in Scripture, and you'll appreciate the play on words here where the, the veil is pulled back a little bit on who God is, and the people get a sense of who God is from this experience that is there. We can say, I think, fairly enough, that this is almost looking at the Holy of Holies, but there's no veil there. Now, there's clouds, so you can't see completely clearly, but that's the idea of what is taking place in this first corporate worship experience of the people of God. Now, to answer the question, what God is like, I want to do a little bit of compare and contrast in this passage with some other passages. You remember that we've been to this mountain before. Moses came to this mountain earlier in Exodus, and God revealed himself to Moses when he came to this mountain. He revealed himself, and it included fire, as we see in this passage here as well. It was God revealing himself in the burning bush. And while that was wonderful to have God speaking from the burning bush to Moses, one might say that as much as it was anything else, it was somewhat of a constrained or a restrained unveiling on the part of God as he spoke with Moses in that place. He talks to Moses very plainly, interacting with Moses, even over details of Moses' own personality, his sense of weaknesses. But God is very forthcoming in identifying himself. In fact, one might even say that we don't even see God as forthcoming in all of these passages of Sinai as he was that first time with Moses in terms of revealing his name, his covenantal love that he has for his people, the plans that he has. They're all very detailed and they're very intimate with Moses in that particular setting. In Exodus 19, God doesn't say a lot about himself. Now, he will, mind you, we're going to have chapters and chapters and chapters of God revealing himself and revealing his will. But here, that's not quite yet. This, this revelation of God, this theophany of God, is more of an experiential revelation of God. We might say that for Israel, for Israelites, as they approach this mountain, they were going to be on sensory overload in what God and how God was revealing himself to them. Think of the senses for a moment. What do they hear? Well, they hear thunder. 
God's voice speaking like thunder. They hear the trumpet blast, the shofar as it's being blown, the, the great ram's horn as it's blown. And, and one gets the sense here that it increases in volume. Verse 19, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. I think this is fair to say from this text, but one almost gets the sense of each step closer that God takes, that trumpet blast is louder. And they're hearing this. What do they see as that is taking place? Well, they see lightnings and thick clouds and smoke and fire, like a kiln going up. And, and certainly, uh, now I'm not going to go into taste and smell, we don't see anything specifically here, but if you're full of that kind of smoke, you can rest assured that some of that is getting up in your nostrils and you're tasting all of that, you're experiencing. And what do they feel? They feel the shaking and the trembling that is going on that feels certainly like an earthquake. All this is functioning together for Israel to understand the answer to this question, what God is like. Israel, this is what He's like. And it's what gives rise to the concluding summary, the concluding summary that is found in the Hebrews passage that we read earlier, and, and it's just a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is reflecting on this incident, but the idea that our God is a consuming fire. That's a summary statement that reflects all of what we've got here. And then, of course, that's why I had this verse on the front of your bulletins, because it begs a question if God's a consuming fire. Who among us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who can dwell with everlasting burnings? That's, in essence, the same question that was asked in your call to worship this morning. Here from Psalm 24, you can find it in other psalms as well. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can get to that place? Now I know, we all naturally think, yes, I can ascend, I can go into this place. But he's a consuming fire. And while fire looks nice and looks interesting, when you get near a consuming fire, you run away. You don't go up into it. Now, let me contrast this for a moment, because I think this has some value to us. Let me contrast this with another experience of God on this same mountain. So Moses and the people are here, and I'm going to say now roughly 500 years after this event, 500 years after Sinai, if you'll recall the story, Elijah does battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And after God's victory, if you recall the story, it's a great celebration of God's victory. And then Jezebel, the queen, sets off and sets people after Elijah. And Elijah, fleeing the wrath of Jezebel, ends up on Mount Sinai. He comes, it's called Mount Horeb, but that's the same name, same place, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And he comes to this exact same place Apparently, what he's seeking is both a refuge in this God who acts in this way at this particular place, 
and he's also kind of looking for God to do what God does, namely, avenge me. Everybody is disobeying. You do what you do, consuming fire, consume. He gets to the mountain, and God asks him a couple of times, what are you doing here? Why are you here at this particular place? And he tries to explain, and then God says this, and we hear this in verse 11. So picture, same mountain. And he said, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Amen, says Elijah. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm looking for. This God right here who's going to do that kind of stuff to bad people who are chasing me. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. All right, we don't need, we don't need wind. Just give me some of that earth-shaking, shattering kind of stuff. That can take care of people as well. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. Consuming fire at its work. Let's do it. Let's burn them up. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Yahweh speaks to Elijah, what, what is God like? Is he like a burning bush? Is he like a consuming fire? Or is he like a low whisper? Same God, same mountain. People of God standing before him. What is God like? Well, we have to take all of it. We, we can't pick and choose. We, we, don't, we don't have the option of picking and choosing what he's like. We have to understand from passages like this that he is both transcendent, which is to say he's overall, he's different than we are. We want to think he's cozy. We want to think he's nice, but he's different than we are, and he's dangerous, and he's imminent. He's closer than we realize. He's able to speak in a low whisper to those who find themselves in need. We have to put all of these together if we want to understand how God reveals himself. That said, Sinai is a particular type of revelation. And it's loud and it's scary. And that is exactly what it is intended to be. He's a consuming fire. Having considered how you prepare and then what this God is like, the question becomes, what does he want? What does he want from us? He rescued this people through the mighty deeds that he did in Egypt because of the covenant love that he has for them. He brought them to this mountain. He had them prepare to be consecrated before them, and he has provided this extreme, visual, visceral representation of himself, a sensory overload. Why? To what ends? To answer that, we're going to need the the passage right here, Exodus 19. We're going to need Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to need the first commandment as well. These things all go together to answer this question of what does he want? He wants three things, at least. First of all, he wants exclusive worship. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods, no other people, nothing. 
comes between you and me. Hebrews 12, verse 28 says this, let us offer to God acceptable worship. You want to know what God wants? What is God's will for my life? God's will for your life is that you worship Him. I know the question goes in different directions as well. But before Israel, before the church is anything else, we are a worshiping community. First and foremost, churches may orient around any number of things, and they do, around cell groups, around small group ministries, around mercy ministries that go out to people in the area, social programs of various types, educational programs, family ministries. Great things, super things, wonderful things. But none of those things are the central animating core of who we are as the people of God. What we do and who we are is we are a worshiping community that worships. Sorry, that was a little redundant. That's what we do. That's who we are. It's the center point for us. It is the height of our calling and our greatest privilege, and it is the primary purpose for which Israel was gathered, taken out of Egypt, and brought to this particular mountain to worship. And it is the primary purpose for us to worship Him. And for that to be, in the words of Hebrews, acceptable worship, again, we're tempted to think all all worship is acceptable. He's an accepting kind of God. He accepts everything. No. For that to be acceptable worship, it must be exclusive worship. God's not making it up as He goes along. You shall have no other gods before me. A people called, a people assembled for the worship of God is a constant. It's the same. New Testament, Old Testament, it's the same. That is the primary call that we have, whatever else may be variable around it. Secondly, God wants that worship to be a worship characterized by reverence and awe. The presence of God at Sinai was designed to produce fear and trembling. It was shock and awe, God's style. Watch this. Israel, consider who I am. And it worked. Moses trembled, the earth trembled, the Israelites trembled, everybody was trembling. God was shaking everything and everything got shaken. And an almost paralyzing fear comes among the people. As the writer to Hebrews describes it, it was terrifying. It was so terrifying, the people were so overwhelmed that they would ask Moses, this being with God is a dangerous thing. Would, would you do us a favor? Would you do the talking with him? And then just come down and tell us what he's got to say. We can't be this close to him. lest we be destroyed. In other words, they were scared to death. They were scared of death when they worshiped God. Jesus changes this. 
we don't have, when we worship, a paralyzing, distance-making fear because Jesus, a mediator greater than Moses, has gone up the mountain. A better one than Moses went up a higher mountain than Moses climbed. Jesus went into the heavenly places, there to make the perfect offering for sin, there to function as the great priest on behalf of a sinful people, there to say, Father, let them in in my name. Let them in in my clothes. Under my banner, bring them in to this place that instead of being terrifying, get us away from here, is a place of grace and mercy, a place to find help when you are in trouble. Perhaps we get a little bit of a foretaste of that in Elijah's experience there. By the way, who's on the mountain with Jesus at the time of the transfiguration when it was full of smoke? Those two guys, Elijah and Moses, the guys who've been at that mountain with God before, the guys who know what it's like to be at that mountain, knew what it was like to wait for this one to come. They were just men on that mountain. They were waiting for the God-man to come and to be on that mountain to accomplish his own exodus for the people. Now, while this makes worship for us ten times more safe, ten times more joyful than it was for them, it is still to be done, as the writer of Hebrews says, with reverence and awe. Why? Because God is still a consuming fire. God hasn't changed. The character of God, the nature of God hasn't changed. That's a constant And therefore, you don't come to worship cavalierly, casually, carelessly. Uh, You know this, I trust, from knowing me for years now. I I don't like to engage in polemics uh, when not needed, in, in targeting others. I'm more happy just to speak about us. But here's the reality. Much of the evangelical community has embraced a light-hearted approach to worship, a take-it-or-leave-it approach to this activity. Well, if you come to worship, it's okay. If you don't come to worship, that's okay. You get your spiritual life someplace else. Get your spiritual life in a small group, maybe in a school context, maybe at home, maybe some other place. You get your spiritual life there. And the worship itself is light and easy. And people would like to come out from worship like that, feeling good while they're doing it, feeling good while they come out, and hoping that the pastor gave them something pithy that they could apply in marriage or maybe work or play. Now, I'm not against joy. We're for joy in worship, 
but what we are for is a weighty joy, a joy that has gravity to it. Reverent joy in worship that communicates to us the full range of who God is in His self-disclosure of Himself primarily through the Word and in the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, He wants us to worship with reverence and awe, but we don't worship with a paralyzing fear. We are not scared to death. None of you, I suspect, were scared to death when you came in here today. Astonishingly not scared to death. Astonishingly because Jesus has made that possible. Jesus has made it possible for you, instead of coming to this place as a place where you might die, it's now been transformed into a place where you come to this place you worship that you might live. This is a difference, not a difference in substance, but a difference in emphasis between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One characterized by death because the law is saying to you, you are guilty before this God and you just might die. The other characterized by a dispensation of the kindness of God and the goodness of God so that you come into this place not with fear of death, but with reverence and awe that leads you to life. Third thing he wants from us is he wants us to listen. This, this preparation and manifestation of God is his way of saying to us, listen up. Listen carefully to what I am about to say. God reveals himself in that way in the Exodus to say, stop whatever else you're doing and listen to me. On the front of the, the bulletin last week, I had a quote from Deuteronomy 4. It was this. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words but saw no form. There was only a voice. No form. A voice. A voice that they were called on to hear. Whether that voice is thundering at Sinai or whispering at Sinai, God wants us to hear. And the command continues. You read that Hebrews passage, or you listen to that Hebrews passage that we read earlier, and one can almost get the sense, it's saying two things at the exact same time. One can almost get the sense, though, whoo, glad I'm not there. That would have been a scary place to be, Sinai. Ooh, glad I'm not there. Glad Jesus has provided a better way. Until you keep reading it. And it goes with this. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refuse him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Do you hear the comparison there? It got ramped up. The call to listen, to heed. What the writer of Hebrews says is, listen, that was earthly. 
You're hearing from heaven now. Pay attention. Heed these words. And it, and, and it continues on. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now, once more, he's promised, I'll shake the earth. I'll shake not only the earth, I'm shaking the heavens as well. A greater shaking in store. Being prepared for than the shaking that existed at, Hi at Sinai. Get ready for it and listen for Israel, even though this theophany here in 19 is primarily experiential. It, of course, is preparatory for all that will come after that, and it, it has at its heart then, the proper response to it is the great confession and the great command that belongs to Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Shema. It's a command to listen to what God says. And that, that command continues throughout Scripture. It's a constant, though the form is a variable. Jesus repeatedly says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For the church, preachers are given to the church so that this word of God can be heard. But the incarnate Jesus and the pastor proclaiming the word are in form, when compared to Sinai, more like a whisper than Sinai, than the thunder and lightning there. If you will, Jesus' steps are lighter in this world than those thundering, earth-shaking steps as God descends upon Sinai. greater mediator had a lighter step, a dispensation of kindness to woo, if you will, the people of God. Even the message, though in essence the message is the same, Old and New Testament, there is a different emphasis between the two. The emphasis of the New Covenant dispensation being his anger is turned away. Your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is forgiven. Be comforted, therefore, in Jesus. So as they came to that mountain, they heard law with a capital L and grace with a lowercase g. When you come to this place, you hear grace with a capital G and law with a lowercase l. They're the same message, though the emphasis has shifted between the two. Wondrously, because the quiet voice of Jesus has spoken to us. But don't make the mistake of thinking that because the voice is quiet, you don't have to listen. Because you've got to remember two things in the life of Jesus. His baptism and his transfiguration. What did the Father say? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him right now. This is the time to listen. Not when he comes back. 
The time to listen is now. The time for shaking will be when he returns, and it'll be too late. All right, let's bring these together, these three questions of being on approach. Landing a plane on approach is a serious business. It can seem routine to us. It is a serious business. You get it wrong, people die. Meeting with God is a serious business. Preparing to meet with God is a serious business. What he is like and what he wants. All of this is important for how we worship now. Every part of this worship service, whether or not you recognize it, whether or not you appreciate it, every part of this worship service is designed with exactly this structure and these principles in mind. From my opening greeting to you of grace and peace, to the preparation for worship, the confessing of our sins, the praising and the thanking of God, on to the time when we sit back as the people of God and hear from Him. Why are the sermons so long? Well, it's shorter than Sinai, kids. That's something. Because we're listening people. That's what God wants in worship. We didn't make it up. It's the way he structures worship, that we come together, we sing praise, we glorify him, we receive the forgiveness of his sins, and we go, God, what do you have to say to us? Every part of it is designed with this in mind. But don't forget this. This is all, and this seems apropos with last week's sermon, a dress rehearsal. Because another day is coming. The trumpet will sound. The earth will shake once more. The Lord will descend with a shout. And fire will come. The great call to worship will be made. And we will either be destroyed or we will receive an unshakable kingdom and dwell in the glorious presence of God. Are you prepared for the day? Now, we cannot prepare ourselves for that day. There is no way to get ready for it. There will be no place to hide, no cave deep enough, no clothes shiny enough to be ready for that worship service. You will have to be prepared. The good news is Jesus and the Spirit of God are seeking worshipers for that day. That's what they're doing. The better news is they are saving worshipers for that day. Seeking, saving, cleansing worshipers for that day. They're preparing worshipers for that day. They're consecrating worshipers for that day. You got it, right? You see the connections here? They are sanctifying worshipers for that day. That's what Jesus is doing through the Spirit, through the Word, through the preaching ministry of the Word. He's getting the bride ready sanctifying, to present her spotless 
ready for worship on his great day, which becomes her great day as well. May we be found on that day prepared to worship, prepared to meet God, clothed in Jesus, by Jesus, and ready to dwell in his presence for all eternity. Let's pray.